This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard, folks. Dr. Charles Parker here one more time. And, you know, without I, the, one of the words I really like is trivialize, and I don't want to see things trivialized. And, you know, one of the things that happens in the new year, we're still quite conspicuously in the new year. And we're going to be talking about food a little bit because so many people think, hey, it's a new year. I'm going to go on a diet. I mean, does that sound like a trivialization or what? I mean, and what's going to happen, we have a really cool woman, Carly Pollack, who's going to join us from beautiful downtown Austin, Texas. And she's going to tell us about how to not trivialize food and how to understand it on a completely different level. You know how much I like the concept of markers. Well, Carly's going to tell us how food can become a marker. Thank you so much for joining us, Carly. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So excited to have this conversation. Well, it's going to be fun. I'm going to definitely, all of us are going to learn something from this. So let me introduce you to her, and then we'll go ahead and really find out what this whole food marker thing is about that we're talking about. So Carly's an interesting person. She is the author of Feed Your Soul and is the founder of Nutritional Wisdom. And let me just tell you what that whole title is. It's Feed Your Soul, Nutritional Wisdom to Lose Weight, to Lose Weight Permanently, and live a fulfilled life. So the issue is a larger issue, as you can see from the title of that book. You know, she's equating food with, my friends, wisdom. And we can all use a little bit of wisdom here. So back to the intro. She is a, has a thriving private practice in beautiful downtown Austin, Texas. She's a CCN, Certified Clinical Nutritionist, with a master's degree in holistic nutrition. Carly's been awarded Best Nutritionist in Austin five years running and has helped over 10,000 people achieve their health and happiness goals. And you can visit her online at carlypollock.com. We'll have that link in the show notes. And Carly wrote some stuff, and I'm just going to say this right from a quick beginning, and then she can tell us more about it. But she talks about, you know, the fact that there are countless diets, cleanses, and 30-day challenges that are all geared to help people lose weight. They can heal their digestion. They can feel more energy. Yet these temporary protocols fall short when it comes to the true transformation that one can have with really nutritional guidance that's available and it's really applicable and you can use it in your own home. You can use it. And what happens, it, it goes right down the path of what we talk about all the time in Core Brain Journal, at Core Brain Journal, with the experts we've had, and that is a condensation of wisdom in terms of how to use everyday experience to really grow your own life, your own appreciation of what you do and your positive effect on others. So the issue then is, I think really the next question really quite easily is to, how did she take the leap? And Carly, how did you take that leap from being a nutritionist, which sounds like on one level fairly you know, academic, here's what you do, here's what you don't do, rules and engagement into this much larger picture of how you can apply it in ways that are so much more constructive than simply doing a diet. So could you tell us a little bit about that? A little 
over 10 years ago, I started my own private practice. In fact, before that, I was working for Whole Foods Market, which is why I moved to Austin. The world headquarters are placed in down beautiful downtown Austin. <laughs> and I uh, piloted the first nutrition consulting program for Whole Foods Market. And when it was time, I started my own private practice. At that point, I was doing exactly what you just mentioned. I was telling people and teaching them the science of nutrition, and I was asking them to modify their behavior. And what would happen would be that they would come in having modified their behavior and seeing some sort of reward from it. I ate this and I didn't eat that and I feel great after 10 days, yada, yada. Everything was great. And then over time, they would come back. They would come back two weeks later and they would say, you know what? I don't know why, but I'm not doing that thing anymore that gave me that amazing reward. And I would sit in front of them and I wouldn't know what to tell them, but to go back into the science and try to convince their minds that the science was why we should do this. Their path was also mirroring my own path. At the time, I felt like I was very on and off the protocol and that was there were things in my life that I so badly wanted to be consistent but weren't. It was at that moment that I realized the science alone is not going to get people to act. That just because you know better doesn't mean you do better. And I know that Oprah always says, when you know better, you do better. And I love me some Oprah, but I just have to disagree that there is a huge gap between knowing what to do and, and taking massive action and more importantly, taking consistent massive action. And at that point, I stopped, you know, I got my nose out of the geeky nutrition books and I started studying psychology of the mind and spirituality and what gets people to make changes day after day and have an authentic desire. That's the biggest thing. I can be forced to do something because I'm in pain. But what about when I wake up in the morning and I say, I can't wait to have another day where I eat healthy and think healthy thoughts and do my meditation instead of, oh man, I really should eat this, but I really want fries instead. <laughs> and that, to answer your question, was really that turning point for me once I started private practice and I saw that the science just wasn't cutting it for people. Well, you know, the interesting thing, as you were saying, right when you began speaking, I was thinking about, I was identifying with you uh, being in that situation with individuals. And I was thinking about, I was going to say something, but then you just took it right down that path. And that is pain is what we deal with so much. Me as a psychiatrist and, and you as a nutritionist, here's the pain and let the pain be your teacher and let's stay with the pain. And really what you're saying is that there's a, that food can become a marker for transformation, for self-transformation. And, and that by understanding your relationship with food, and getting away from what really is a trivialization of food and diet, you can actually have a self-discovery process using food as a mentor. It sounds like that's what you're thinking about. Yeah, and you know, pain can't be the only thing that motivates us because pain is a really great short-term motivator, but it goes away the second we start doing the right thing. I find that in everyone's health, there's a pain threshold for Many women, the pain threshold might be minor. It might be that we don't fit into our skinny jeans and every morning we put on the jeans and we have emotional pain in the closet because our clothes don't fit. Or it could be really severe. There's someone who's a diabetic and goes to the doctor and the doctor says, 
you have not been listening to me, and now I need to amputate your leg. And it can be as severe as, as that, but everyone has a pain threshold. And when they hit that pain threshold, they are super motivated to act. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. The second they act and have results, that pain threshold goes away. The pain goes away and they lose motivation because that's the very thing that was motivating them. That's why we yo-yo diet so consistently because we get to the point where we're in pain because of the consequence of our eating. We eat better for a certain period of time and we're ne we never get to that place where we're ultimately at peace with our bodies or we feel like we're in the best health of our lives. We just go as far as we're no longer in pain. Then our mental story changes and says, I can eat that because I'm not in pain. My, my pants fit. Isn't that and, and it's the diet induced groundhog day. So what I'm saying is that although pain is a great term, great short term motivator, it cannot be the only thing that pushes us to do the right thing regarding our health. So true. You know, I think the, the point that you made in the material that I was reading before we started the interview was that you actually almost have an anti-diet message. I mean, if you really think about what you're talking about from the larger perspective of a person's life, you're really, and I, I want you to tease this apart because maybe I'm misunderstanding this, but it sounds to me like you've got, hey, forget the diet. If you're thinking about diet, you're not really thinking correctly about your evolution with food. I'll take it one step further. I would say I'm anti-diet in a way and I'm pro-diet and I'll tell you why. Diet is just a word for how we eat. So you could have a really crappy diet or you could have a healthy diet or you could be on a grapefruit diet, but everyone is on a diet whether they want to admit it or not. I'm anti-diet in the way of what you said, dieting without a spiritual path, without a deeper understanding of what drives us to think, feel, and do what we do is just behavior modification. And I am anti-diet as behavior modification, eat this, don't eat that, do this for 30 days. Where I'm pro-diet is that I feel like everybody needs to be on some sort of protocol where there's some boundary around food. because. We now have supermarkets that have a potato chip aisle, okay? There is an entire aisle <laughs> that is dedicated to the potato chip, which is not wrong. Potato chips are fantastic. Maybe they deserve an yeah. aisle. But for people who are truly anti-diet, they say, okay, don't make any rules around food because that makes you crazy. Just eat what you crave. And in that perspective, I feel like there's too much imbalance going on for people today to not have some boundary around food. If you have ADHD or ADD, the protocol is a gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free diet. If you have gut issues, you're going to have a specific protocol around that. If you want to lose weight, you probably shouldn't walk down the potato chip aisle. Well, you know, you said it twice and I want to tease it apart a little bit because the way you are speaking about boundaries is not in everyday parlance. And I think it's important for people to get that concept. I mean, you may be using it because you're so familiar with the application within your practice. But I think that the way you were talking about the boundary realization and how that fits with food, if you could elaborate on that, that term and that concept and the application of that concept, I'd appreciate it. First, I never use the word rules because I feel like when we say food rules that people when you hear rule, you want to break it. So I call them loving boundaries. 
And I call these loving boundaries because when I was in clarity about how I wanted to nourish my body, I made a boundary out of love. So they're called loving boundaries. But I believe that there's really two levels of food freedom. The first level of food freedom is a very unenlightened way to look at it, to say, yeah, I have food freedom. I can eat whatever I want. I have no rules whatsoever. Whatever I see, I can put in my mouth. But ultimately, that type of freedom, that low level of freedom, creates a body prison for people because they'll never feel free and healthy in their body. The next level and the level that we all are striving for, this enlightened level of food freedom, is to say, I have loving boundaries around food so I can feel free in my body. I've had to rework the definition because you and I know it's all about mind work. Mm-hmm. I've had to rework the definition of food freedom to me is not eating whatever I want in the moment. It's eating foods that love me back, respect me back, are good to my body. So ultimately, I can have body and health freedom. And that's a totally different way of looking at boundaries around food than people going, oh, I'm a diet. I'm on a diet. I feel restricted. I feel scarcity around food. I need to break this. That's like saying I'm not going to go out with a disrespectful date again. I mean, if that is what it is and it has a, a human relationship quality. Imagine you dated someone and when they kissed you goodnight, they punched you in the face. And then you just kept going on a date. Ouch. Because ultimately, that's what we do. We eat the food for four minutes of pleasure. It gives us days, weeks, maybe a lifetime of consequence. And it's something that I want every listener or watcher to think about the agreement we make with food. What if I said to you, you give me $10,000 and in exchange, I'll give you $5. It's just a deal no one would make. They say you have to be crazy, but we're doing it with food. We say, give me four minutes of pleasure for a lifetime of feeling uncomfortable in my body, for a shortened life, for a life where I don't feel confident, where I don't feel energetic, where I don't feel clear headed. It's a deal when you think about it, no one would make in their right mind. A person is only emphasizing the percentage piece of it that is gratifying and missing the nefarious backwoods disease portion or whatever it would be. I'm just using the disease metaphor, but you know, when you're talking about intimacy, really, it's, it's uh, one has Confidence. the easy next step of sexually transmitted disease. I mean, basically you, you're sort of being unreserved in your relationship with that item and not really thinking about the consequences And so then it's just going to be fun for a moment, and then you have to pay the price down the road. And I want to be clear that the answer is is not never eat foods that are unhealthy for you, because that's not realistic. And I don't want to live a life without French fries and pizza and the occasional cheeseburger. I'm saying when you eat those foods too often, the balance becomes imbalanced and there's a consequence. If 80 to 90% of what you eat is health-giving, energy-giving, then I can go and eat foods that are fried or laden with sugar and really enjoy foods that are good for my soul sometimes and not necessarily good for my body as long as that balance is there. For many years, I would say at least six years, I've followed a boundary of having two free meals, not days, but two free meals per week where I eat whatever I like, whatever tastes good, and it's never healthy, (laughs) but all the rest of the week, I'm eating clean, healthy foods. And I've been able to maintain my health, my immunity, my weight, and it 
really is the best of both worlds. You can have your cake and eat it too. You just can't eat that much cake. Well, you know, the, the, I don't want to work this metaphor too much, and please contradict me or shut me up if it's annoying, but I really hadn't thought about this whole relationship thing as clearly as you're stating it. I mean, it is a very seductive concept because really it's the same thing with so many other things, but food in this particular case has a much more a likelihood when you're not reserved and, and judgmental and have that proper loving boundary a concept for it to be destructive and to really significantly harm you. And the problem is that the harm comes over time. One of the things that we see happen so often over on my side of the practice is so much of mental health ignores time. You know, it's sort of like, here's your label. This is what you got. I'm going to throw some meds at it. Talk to you later. Got to go, you know. And the whole concept of what happens to your humanity over time is uniformly overlooked. I mean, whether it's relationships, whether it's, in this case, food, there's so many things that are going overlooked because the person doesn't actually think about the, the quality of time and how you're actually spending time. And you did such a good job of telling us about it there. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, um, your plate is truly a reflection of your inner state. So if you allow it to teach you something more deeply about yourself than just, hey, this is what I eat in the moment, all of these patterns can come up for you that when brought to your awareness can be healed. Here's the thing, you can't heal something if you're not aware that it's going on. Yeah, totally. Carly, let me ask you this question because I'm thinking now would be fun to take it a little bit further into a couple of uh, areas. What would be some of the themes that you would say are the most revisited themes as you're working with individuals when they reach impediments, so they, they can understand this, as many of us can understand your excellent presentation. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear and self-evidence. You're really doing a great job of telling us about it. But then the next level is inserting the concept of time and looking at one's plan for a lifetime. And some of what you say in the book sounds like it directly addresses what one does over time using the boundary discrimination but please tell us a little more about how does a person, because that is the, you, right when we started talking, that's yeah. the place where people have the problem. So let's talk a little more about that if we could. I would say the one of the number one impediments people have is that they tend to focus on the process of what needs to be done instead of putting their focus and attention on the outcome of what they will gain and what they will experience as a result going through the process. Mm -hmm. When you think about, Anything in life that's worth it, whether it's marriage, health, financial security, the process of doing whatever it takes to receive that reward has pain attached to it. There's going to be discomfort. There's going to be sacrifice. There's going to be discipline. And anytime you put your focus on the process, inevitably you will fail because you'll be immersing yourself in the pain association of what we have to do. And humans don't do anything that causes pain. It's our fight or flight survival mechanism. It's the way that we keep surviving is we seek pleasure and we avoid pain. With health, think about how many pain associations there are. Having to cook, food shop, exercise, constantly clean the kitchen and wash your laundry, go to sleep on time, drink so much water that you have to pee all day long, you know, <laughs> wake up in the night, hey, remember to take your supplements. There's just so much involved in the process that if you don't continuously 
put your focus on the outcome, you'll never be consistent. And if you're not consistent, you won't create permanent change. So that's the first thing I think I see the most. The second piece is that when it comes to food and health, people get stuck in black and white thinking. Either they are on the diet or they're off the diet, or they ate healthy all day, but at 3 p.m., they eat a cookie and then they go, well, that's it. Today's beat. I ate the cookie. It's done. It's 3 p.m., people. You got a whole day ahead of you. That black and white thinking or another a few stories of black and white thinking. I'm so far gone. So how could, you know, I have so much weight to lose or I feel so unhealthy that I might as well just give up. Or the I'll start tomorrow. So there are all these black and white stories that people get trapped in. And true health, permanent health, it lives in a gray area. There is no way to be on a diet, quote unquote. And this is why diets and cleanses are 30 days. There has to be an endpoint because Mm -hmm. anything that's too rigid ultimately breaks. This gray area is I can go to a restaurant and order a salad and french fries. But I ordered a salad and maybe I don't eat dessert. But many people with black and white thinking would say, no, wait, that doesn't, either I'm eating the salad and putting lemon on it and nothing else, or I'm having the burger and fries. We feel very uncomfortable in the gray area because we need that sticker. It's like we need to know we're successful or we've failed. We can't just be in that middle ground. That is so true. That's exactly what's going on in psychiatry in general. Anyway, I'm, I'm sorry to take such a big leap, but that's that what, no, go, I love that's the, what goes I on love with the, the parallel. The human mind is exactly that way, you know? Are you ADD? Give me a break. Are you depressed? Right. I tell people I don't right. use those words. Those words are not productive in our working relationship because the words are not functional words. They're categorical and reductionistic words. And first of all, if you're thinking about yourself as a human being, you have to think about yourself in percentages. So to say your ADD misses the 80% that's handling yourself well. So let's look at the specific targeted objective, which is what you're saying. I really hadn't quite thought about it the way you're thinking about it. I mean, it's intuitively so correct. I mean, as you say it, it's like, oh my gosh, why doesn't everybody do that? But you know, the issue then- It's funny what you just said, I haven't thought about what came to you, what you just said. I never thought about it like that. I, I always say to people, what you focus on, you feel, even if it isn't real. And when you think about someone saying I'm depressed, I mean, I immediately, when you said that, thought about someone- at a funeral, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I went to my grandfather's funeral. And although it was very sad, there were points where we were laughing hysterically. And then there were points that when we thought about honoring his life, we felt love. And humans are so multidimensional that to put yourself in a box in black and white thinking and saying, I feel this way. Well, if you change your focus, and you focus on something else, you could find something to be gratitude that even if that for two, two minutes you didn't feel depressed, then you're getting out of the black and white thinking of either I am one way. If I'm depressed, I can't be happy. Well, as you said so articulately a moment ago, failure, failure is tied up with black and white thinking. You, it's, a, it's a very it, definition. Because it's just like, okay, you didn't do it. That's it. Got to go. I'll talk to you later. And whereas if you say, well, You've really done, we saw this, I worked in addiction for many years. I don't do it so much anymore because I was a little too out of the box when I was working in addiction and I was a psychiatrist. I mean, I had to be a drug addict or alcoholic to really have any credibility. But the bottom line is when you're thinking about a human being, a person who's addictive and they've had a problem and they're in recovery, well, you know, the whole idea of once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic just completely 
boiled my soul every time. And somebody go into a, a meeting and they would say, well, you're just an alcoholic. That is like, I am absolutely not going to think about you as a human being. I'm not going to think about you as a human being. I've got you put in a box over there and that's what you are. Depression is the same way and bipolar is the same way. ADD is the same way. You know, I had to, I wrote a book on ADHD medications. I had to use the term because I knew no one would take it off the shelf if we talked about executive function, which is no one would understand what the heck is a guy talking about. But when anybody comes in and does an evaluation and they say, okay, well, now I'm going to summarize what your problem is, but I want to really care, careful about this. You've got 20% of your personality is tied up with this. You've got about 80% is cooking along very darn well. And every time we say anything about you, I'm going to always think about that 80%. Sure, you and I can get together and work on that 20%. But if we get lost with 20% and only 20%, and that's what you come to me for, and I'm a 20%, that's all I am, then we're not going to go anywhere. It's just not going to work because you'll hate me in the end. And you will then be a treatment failure. And somehow I'll be blamed because I thought of you in that limited reductionistic way and didn't give you any room to breathe. This is exactly why I redefine what success and failure is. My definition of success is not how clean I can eat or how healthy I can be or how positive I can think. My definition of success is when I fall off, when I lose awareness and I eat unconsciously or I go into my stressful fear-based thoughts or I allow myself to snooze when the alarm goes off or I skip that meditation, whatever that is that makes me feel like I'm not on it with my health. My definition of success is how quickly I can return back to a place of clarity and of consistency. That is my mark of success, not how many times I fall out. Same thing for even relationships. Your mark of success is not for how little you argue or disagree. It's how quickly you come back to a place of love and respect. And I'm just saying the same thing with food. How quickly I come back to self-love and self-respect of my body, that is a mark of success, which means I may be more successful eating a cupcake and after saying, that's not how I want to feed my body and the next meal having a salad. That is more successful than me going a whole day, eating a salad, hating myself because I'm on some crazy diet, feeling mm -hmm. anxious about it, ultimately feeling like I'm not in control. But on the surface, that looks successful because of the calories I put in my mouth. It's a redefinition. And failure redefined is only time I judge myself for doing something that's not in alignment with the way I live my life. That means that I can be out of alignment, but as long as I recognize this and ask myself, how can I grow from this, that there's actually no way for me to fail. That is so well said. I mean, that's, that's really the essence of any recovery process, because yeah. what you said is so true about food. I don't want to, you know, minimize I mean, the gravity of that situation is so profound. It sounds simple, but it's so profound because that is what helps a person stay in any recovery process is they reintegrate on the path that they were really looking to, to integrate in the first place. And now, you know, with food and having to eat three times a day, and it's not, it, there's not an abstinence option. We, we need to be around food. We're around food everywhere we go. We need to fuel ourselves at least three times a day. There is no perfection. I am 
an expert and a teacher on permanent change and conscious eating. And last night I unconsciously ate my meal while working on my emails at the same time. Mm -hmm. But halfway through, I recognized and closed my computer. That's success. So there's, there's no, you're on the path and know that there's never going to be a point where you get to check this off a list. Oh, great. I'm healthy and I'm a conscious eater and I drink my green juices. So I'm good. Every day you wake up and start again. And there's, there's a beauty in being humbled like that. So true. So well said. I mean that, you know, while you're talking, I'm thinking about, I want to take a slight diversion here because I think what you're talking about is so absolutely elemental to any recovery process, certainly food being the everyday experience that it is. But, you know, so many people with all kinds of problems were in there chasing gratification and they don't go back to who they are and they keep chasing the gratification inappropriately and counterproductively. You know, that's, it's, it's a big deal. But let me ask you this question about the law of attraction, because I think that you had a mention in there and it would be edifying to me and I'm, uh, I'm certain to a number of our people how you integrate the law of attraction in this larger process, please. The law of attraction I define as like attracts like, and you need to put out there what it is you want. I equate law of attraction to something I call food karma, <laughs> which is when you feel crappy emotionally, you crave foods that will make you feel crappy. No one says, I'm so depressed and anxious, I think I'll make a smoothie. <laughs> they say, give me the fries, give me the cookies, give me the ice cream. And in the opposite vein, no one leaves a yoga class or leaves a meditation or a self-development experience and says, I just ran five miles, I can't wait to stuff fried food in fact, in, down my gullet. In fact, you will almost feel repulsed by that food because you're not an energetic match. Food has energy. We have energy. When you are high energy, you crave foods that have high energy, foods that rot and spoil, fruits, vegetables. If you're eating a meat eater, healthy, grass-fed, organic proteins. And when you don't feel well, you'll notice that you crave the very foods that continue to make you not feel well, which is a real vicious cycle. The deep work is then focus on how you feel instead of focusing on behavior modification. And if you really take a look at your emotional state and ultimately the thoughts and stories that are driving that, you will have such a better handle and more power over your food choices than when you feel crappy but are trying to manipulate your food. The other way I think of law of attraction is in our bodies, we are so concerned with what we don't want and how we don't want to feel that that becomes our main attention and where we put our focus. So we wake up every day and we say, well, I don't want this and I don't want that. So we don't visualize or manifest the body that we do want, the health that we do want, the mental state that we do want. We you know, worry all day long about never getting there. And in essence, block ourselves from ever getting there. That is so well said. It's so true. I mean, because you don't have a true connection with your inner self in terms of who you are, who you have the potential of becoming, and you're not really chasing that goal. You're not chasing trivializes it, but uh, you're not really connected with that objective. Connected. That's the issue. And then when you get disconnected from the objective, then because you're internally irritated, Whatever you do doesn't make any difference. It's like, 
It's like, I'm just going to go in the back room and take a razor blade and do some cutting and take some of this pressure off because, and the food thing does become very much like self-injurious behavior because that whole metaphor, we see people happen all the time. They are so internally unhappy with themselves and they don't have a way out of this mishigas of what's going on in their head and self-injurious behavior is a way to do it. And I think the other thing, apropos of just the quick side, almost everybody that has self-injurious behavior in their history is immediately identified as bipolar. <laughs> and it just ain't so. It, I mean, it yeah. can be associated with bipolar, but okay, now, look, you've had self-injurious behavior, so guess what? We're going to give you trileptal. We're going to give you lithium. We're going to give you an atypical antipsychotic, you know, it's just because that's what you really need because you are lost in this reductionistically negative place. We act like we're deficient in those medications. Like the body has a deficiency in that. Like this is exactly what you need. There's a vitamin C deficiency. There's a SSRI deficiency. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm very empathetic towards people and understand how hard it is to use the law of attraction when you're in a body that is not the body that reflects where you want to be. I had a baby nine months ago and thank you. I haven't slept in a year and a half, so we can talk about what lack of sleep does to the brain. You're but, handling yourself uh, well, girl. <laughs> thank you. I'm very shocked and um, very proud of my word recall right now. But after having this baby, you look at your body in the mirror, and truly, it's the aftermath of this beautiful process to grow and, and birth a human, but it's not pretty. And for me, being used to looking a certain way and having inevitably ego wrapped up in that as we all identify with our physical bodies in some way, and then looking at in the mirror and saying, okay, I'm not in the body that is ideal and, and matches how I feel I am inside, and I still need to visualize me being back in that state where I feel healed and I mm -hmm. look the way I want to look and I put on the clothes that I, you know, that fit me. Mm -hmm. And I had to do that while being in this body that didn't feel like it was mine. And so I have a lot of empathy towards anyone listening saying, well, yeah, it's easy for you to attract what you want when you have glimpses of it already. But for those who feel really far away, I have to say, you have to use your imagination. Even if you've never experienced a day or a long period of time where you felt truly at peace or happy or at a body weight that would make you feel proud. We've all mm -hmm. seen the movies. We all have an imagination. Imagine what it would feel like because then you're using the law of attraction even though you're not physically in that state. Does that make sense? Absolutely. In fact, I think, you yeah. know, I'm taking a little bit of an exception. I think you're saying it so eloquently, but I take a slight exception because I think that's part of the work of recovery is a person saying, you know, really find out where you are doing well and write it down mm -hmm. and become, make it part of yourself. Like, wow, that was an interesting conversation with that person. And I'm so happy that I had the experience in my lifetime to share meaningfully in that conversation and I feel more whole in that relationship and with myself, having had that communication, which ordinarily I, I don't have, that little piece right there. And you then write these little moments down. I mean, that's a little bit too much wordage on that one, but you know what I'm talking about. It's basically, yeah. you find a little piece and do it. And you're saying that in the way you were talking about your relationship with food and your recovery process. Here's what I do well, here's what I need to do, and this is going to take me down the wrong path. It's funny you just said that because 
every night I consider myself a permanent change expert. I don't care if you drop 10 pounds and next year you're up 20. That's not permanent change. I want you to drop 10 pounds and I see you in five years from now and the 10 pounds are still off and you're doing better than ever. That to me is real change. And so in order to make permanent change, I ask myself, one of the things I do is I bring awareness into my morning and my evening. My morning, I visualize, even as I'm brushing my teeth, as I'm putting on makeup, as I'm driving in the car, it does not have to be in meditation. I visualize myself going through the day, how I want to eat, how I want to think. I visualize myself laughing and being lighthearted and energetic, and I plant that seed. And then in the evening, I ask myself three questions, and you just said the exact answer to the three questions. The first question I ask myself is, what did I do today that was great? because we do not celebrate ourselves enough. And I want to be able to have ruthless, non-judgmental inventory as to what I need to improve, but I can't do that if I'm not lifting myself up. So the first question I say, what do I do that was great today? The second question is, how can I improve? And the third question is, what am I going to do tomorrow that puts this improvement into action. This way I wake up with that awareness of I need to do this one thing. It also allows me to see patterns because I might have five days at a time where when I ask myself, what could I improve? It's the same thing. Oh, I would have done that meditation. Oh, I would have done exercise first thing in the morning. And then I go, okay, this is really a pattern. I really need to place my focus on this. But you just said, what did I do? What do I need to do tomorrow? You answered those questions. And actually lately I've added a fourth question. And for people who are not journalers, you can just ask your significant other. My husband and I get into bed and every night we ask each other these questions, which is really beautiful because I really, beyond how was your day, honey, I really understand what is going on in his head. Or you could just think these questions. Writing them down is massively powerful, but don't let that stop you if you feel like you just can't get your thoughts on paper. But I recently started asking myself, how did I meet resistance today? Because I recently reread the book by Stephen Pressfield, The War of Art. I and love that book. To, that book is, it's such a good book. It's, it's a mind bender. I mean, actually, I was thinking about putting it on the front page of Core Brain Journal because it's so transformational. Sorry to interrupt. It's you, one of my favorite books. Yeah. You know, and, and so he wrote this book. He started out writing this book for writers because he's a writer. And he said that writers meet this type of resistance, which is why we procrastinate and don't sit down to do the very thing that we love doing. And then he said, you know what? This book is not for writers, it's for everybody, because resistance is going to show up. He even says, I'll quote him probably ineloquently, but he says, resistance's greatest hit are any time you are to engage in any self-development, anything that requires having rock-hard abs, any health or diet (laughs) regimen, anything with relationships, entering a marriage, whether to have a baby, that resistance is just going to show up. And he said the most important question to ask at the end of the day is, how did I meet resistance? And for me, these are my words, I want to look for resistance because I feel like if I don't go looking for it, it's going to come for me. That's so true. So when I feel it, I go, oh, I'm feeling resistant right now. My mind says, you must be doing good work because you're Mm -hmm. feeling uncomfortable. So when I say, oh, I really should um, get up and make dinner right now because if I don't, I'm going to be too hungry. My blood sugar will drop and then I'm going to eat, you know, a box of gluten-free cardboard crackers in my pantry because I'm desperate. (laughs) In that moment that I feel resistance to stop what I'm doing and go to prepare my meal so that I can continue to be healthy, I say, I'm feeling uncomfortable. 
this must be when change happens and I take massive action. So that's lately been the fourth question I ask myself, but it's a powerful question. That's a fantastic point. Now, is that fourth one in your book? Are you going to write a revision of that? I mean, you, you probably it's have not. You, I feel like I've got a second book. It's a good one. You, got, now you, you could do, uh, you know, the second revision, whatever, you know. you got, Part two, yeah. Yeah. But that's great. I mean, that, it's really fantastic. And I think you're so right. His, his book is so impressive. I mean, I came at it as a writer. And then when you get into it and you start actually, uh, you know, I happen to look and see what he's talking about on YouTube, too. And the guy is so articulate. I don't know if you've happened to listen to him on YouTube. But, you know, it's just... I haven't. I just listened to, he was just on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday podcast. And he talks about the art of of resistance and it's really fantastic oh that would be interesting to listen to thanks for telling us about that because yeah he's he's a very unusual person and you know the fact that he's been so close to theater and what happens Mm -hmm. how you actually communicate yourself as a human being in that uh, genre you know and very 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 good well i'm looking at the time i could talk to you for much longer i'm thinking about we got to wind up here but uh i want to Make sure that we connect our audience with you. Uh, you you've taken the time very generously to, to join us out here. And, and the nice thing about this is your words reach far past Austin, Texas, when you get into something like this, which is a lot of fun because a lot of people are going to listen to you. And I know a number of people are going to really appreciate the fresh, engaging perspective that you share about something which could be really drudgery and 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 so overwhelming and it's so timely because it's right here at the beginning of the year and people are thinking about reconstructing their lives and where they're going to go and what they're going to do next. So thank you very much for coming on board. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. And, you know, if people want to learn more, they can head over to carlypollock.com. I'm very active on social media, on Instagram at Carly Pollock, Facebook as well. And my new book, Feed Your Soul, Nutritional Wisdom to Lose Weight Permanently and Live Fulfilled is coming out on February 5th. This is 2019 and is available for pre-order on Amazon, Indie Books, Barnes & Noble, and Book People. So go and grab yourself that's a copy. fantastic. I'm going to put a link on the show notes there so people can get hooked up with that. That's, that sounds uh, terrific. Can people consult with you virtually? Do you have the ability through your website that you counsel people and work with them um, outside? I do. And my private practice is called Nutritional Wisdom. You'll find it on carlypollock.com, but you can go to nutritionalwisdom.com as well. I have three amazing top of the line coaches, as well as myself. I see a few clients still. I do a lot more public speaking these days, but I still see clients and we have online courses. I want to make sure that I can help everyone, no matter what financial price point. So whether it's a $16 book or a year-long coaching package, I have an online course called End Emotional Eating that is a four-week do-it-yourself self-paced course. And if you go to my website and sign up for my emails, you'll get a super discounted rate on the online course. It's $49 for four weeks with meditations, menus, videos. It's a really fantastic course. I'm really, really proud of it. Excellent price point. I mean, you know, yeah. if somebody is having a problem after they've listened to you talk about this whole situation so articulately, 49 bucks. I mean, you know, who can't pass it up? You got yeah. It's normally a $97. And the book, I mean, that's what's so amazing about writing a book is 
for $16. You can get this information if you can't coach with someone one-on-one. But I do see a few clients one-on-one, and I still love my, my coaching practice, and that's nutritional wisdom. Well, one can see that you truly love people. So <laughs> that's quite obvious. So thank you again so much for coming on board. And I want to talk to you briefly after we get off the recording here. And uh, I just want to express my appreciation for you joining us. Thank you so much. Have a good evening. Thanks for listening to Cobrain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications like those written for ADHD are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.